We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Public speaker, purpose coach, and former Harlem Globetrotter Derek Grant joins Jim Lyon to talk sports, the power of being who you are, and making an impact in the world. Derek Grant, you play basketball. I mean, uh, there's a hundred things to know about Derek Grant, but let's just start there, basketball. You are a basketball star. Well. Oh come I don't know on! About all that. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. You're you're thinking. Well, yeah, maybe. But you played ball professionally for eight years with an elite crowd, of the Harlem Globetrotters. That's no small thing. Uh, I just I have to ask: Do you have a basketball hoop at your house? We have multiple basketball hoops at our <laughs> okay. house. What, what does that mean? You, you've got some in the house, got, outside. Everything. We have some in the house. We have one in the driveway. Um, but here's what I've learned. You don't have to actually have a, a, a hoop with a net. You can use anything as a basketball hoop. I just asked my son. My son was up yesterday touching the ceiling and pretend he was dunking a ball. So <laughs> doesn't have to actually have a hoop. We have a lot of hoops in our house. <laughs> and do you use the hoops? I do. You know what? It's one thing. I'm 38 now. I thought over time it would like fade away, but... I still think I'm like that 10-year-old kid who's playing basketball in the kitchen. You can ask my wife. She's, she's like, at <laughs> what point will you stop trying to cross me over while we're cooking dinner? <laughs> and your kids, now you have a son and a daughter. Yes. Uh, are they into it? You said your, your son is. Is your daughter into it too? Yes, they are. My son, he's eight. My daughter's six. Uh, she just got started playing basketball, and she loved it. My son is like basketball through and through. He goes to bed wearing a jersey of his favorite player every night. He wakes <laughs> so, up in the morning, he watches basketball highlights on YouTube. This is all he wants to do. So, yeah. So it's in his blood. Yes, absolutely. Now, is that because you're talking basketball up all the time? You know what? I never wanted to put push what I did on my children, and my wife was the same way. She grew up uh, playing basketball, but we always wanted our children to find their own way in life. So, like, I never forced my child to say, hey, do this, do this. If they need help, I do. Sure, sure. But this was the interesting thing. It was like, wow, like my son was a year when I stopped playing. He was a year old when I stopped playing with the Globetrotters. So he didn't remember. Right, right. And I never forced it on him. I'm like, wow, maybe he just like inherited it somehow through like DNA or something. I don't know. Well, it is not because he says, if I want to find dad, he's out in the driveway shooting hoops. Uh, no, right, right. <laughs> no. Yeah, he, I'm definitely not shooting as much as I used to. So, Well, okay. So Harlem Globetrotters, sure. that is a, a kind of a once in a world kind of an opportunity, it seems to me. Tell us about your childhood. How did you get into basketball? What drew you to do this professionally, to play ball, and, and then to the Globetrotters? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of ironic how it all worked out. I, um, I was a soccer player. I loved soccer. It was easy. All you do is kick the ball and run. That was simple for me. I was somewhat fast. And then one day, my mother... Um, she, she always wanted to introduce us to, to new experiences. And she was like, we're going to go see the Harlem Globetrotters. And at that point, I had never played basketball, didn't have a basketball hoop, didn't even have a basketball at home. And uh, my parents took me and my brother. And I remember sitting there. I can still remember where we sat at. We were living in Rochester, New York. And I remember sitting there watching this. And like, 
the energy, how much fun it was. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I don't even know what this is, but I want to do this. <laughs> and my parents ended up buying me this little mini basketball uh, from the, from the uh, merchandise stand, and I still can see it. I was dribbling down the sidewalk in Rochester, New York, and it was wintertime, it was cold, and the, and the, flat, the lights from the, from the cars were kind of illuminating everything. I was just dribbling down the street, and I'm like, this is it. Like, I love this. And I went home the next day and would play, play basketball in the driveway with no hoop. And my dad finally realized, like, you know, we got to get a hoop. He's going to have a ball, he's got to get a hoop. And this is kind of how it all started. And in your head, soccer was so yesterday. Yes. But, but you know, the <laughs> soccer was, I still played soccer all the way up until I was 13 years old. And then I realized, I'm like, okay, I can play outside in the cold or I can play indoors where there's heat. All year. Yeah. I'm yep. going gonna, I'm, I'm to pick basketball. And so what happened? I mean, so you're a kid shooting hoops. I mean, there are millions of guys doing that. Sure. But there's not very many that get to the Harlem, Harlem Globetrotters. So, yeah. so how, what's the journey? So I, you know, I... Grew up like every other kid playing, you know, in the youth leagues and everything. And I just loved the game so much. I just loved, I can't, I, words won't articulate what it did and does for me. And, you know, I started playing when I was in fifth grade in like rec leagues. And I remember I would score points and I would run down the court just giggling, laughing because it was, it was just so much excitement. I, I say that because now I see my eight-year-old, he does the same thing. <laughs> but this love that came organically because my parents never pushed it on me was kind of this, it, it was a fertilizer for the seed inside of me. And I just, I always had the mindset, like, just get better. That's it. Three, every 365 days, say that you're better this year than you were last year. And I'm the same way now, but I, I all through high school and I did it in college. And I got done with college and it was like, you know what? I can play professionally. Let me keep going as long as I can. And it's funny how life works out sometimes. I went to go try out for a team um, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, just a little semi-pro weekend team. And um, the coach came up to me. He's like, hey, I already have a team pick, and I'm kind of loyal to those guys, but how about you call this guy? I think you'll, you'll be in a good position. He built a bridge. Call, yeah, he built a bridge. And the bridge that he built wasn't a bridge that I wanted to cross at that time because it, was, it wasn't the Globetrotters. Very few know the story. It was the team that plays against the Globetrotters every night. So uh, in my mind, right, I have this big head, my ego. I'm like, I was an All-American in college. I was the second all-time leading scorer at the school. I'm like, I'm not going to lose every night. Are you kidding me? I'm not doing that. <laughs> because that's the setup of the, of the show, so to speak. Right, right. So I ended up initially saying no, and I went home and talked to my father, and he knew my dream, my aspiration was to play professional basketball. And he looked at me, he goes, I thought you wanted to play professional basketball. I'm like, yeah, I do. I'm like, he's like, are they going to pay you to play basketball? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, there you are. There you are. So I learned a, a lesson that whole year I did it. It was very humbling. Because you did ultimately sign up for that. I did. Team. I ended up doing it. And because of that, the Globetrotters saw me every single night. And they got to know me. And they asked me a year later and said, hey, how would you like to try out? And the rest was history. All right. So you went to college. Yeah. You didn't get a basketball degree. Did not. What, what, what were you doing in school? So what was I doing in school? I was playing <laughs> basketball. But that was at that time, that was about all I was doing. Um, when I got done, so my mother was a professor in college. She taught accounting. Um, she's education through and through. Well, those four years I was in college, I did not finish school. I still had another semester. But the way basketball works, I couldn't take a year off from basketball and not have anything on, a, on my basketball resume to finish school. So I told my, my mother, I said, how about I come back to school? And she looked at me like, what? You're not going to like finish school now? I'm like, well, 
the, the college will still be standing there when I come back. Come but, on, mom, yeah, up. right? <laughs> it took some uh, some pushing and pulling, but she finally saw it, and you know, I ended up not graduating, but well, I was probably my fourth or fifth year with the Globetrotters. I went back to school online, ah. and I ended up getting my degree in business leadership. And then I found this this insatiable appetite for just learning. I'm like, I want to go back and get my master's. So I went back and got my master's in organizational management. And at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it, but I'm like, well, I enjoy business and I enjoy people. This is kind of the the people side of business. So that's kind of why I ended up with those two degrees. Yeah, but you just just kind of connected two dots for me here. One is you started playing basketball even as a kid and then got to the place where you loved it so much. You decided, you know, I'm going to be better next year than I was this year. You know, that you were pushing yourself to achieve more in a discipline that gave you passion. But then you just said the same thing really about education. Uh, You you got into it and then decided, oh, I like this so much. I'm going to push myself because that's that's a part of your character. It's a part of who you are, which I'm just going to interpret. Yeah. Uh, You know, here, your therapist on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably allowed you to succeed in a very, very competitive and elite game. Yeah. And let's talk about those Globetrotters. Yeah. I think everybody has heard of the Harlem Globetrotters. I mean, that that's a brand that is ubiquitous in, sure. in our culture. But I'm not sure everyone understands where that came from, why it is what it is, and how it flies today. So give us a little history of the Globetrotters. Yeah, so the Globetrotters started in 1926 uh, by a guy named uh, Abe Saperstein. And basically, he had he had a group of players. They were called at the time, they were from Chicago, Illinois. They were called the Savoy Big Five. Well, you know, in the 20s, you know, obviously the, the, the racial landscape. Because this was an African-American team. Right. It was an African-American team owned by a Jewish white guy. And Times were different. They couldn't find anybody to play against. Nobody wanted them to come play. So what he did was, I mean, he was a genius at the time, I guess, in terms of marketing. He said, here's a team from Harlem. Because at the time, Harlem was like Hollywood. Harlem was the place to be from if you were an African-American, right? It was the center of culture, entertainment. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And he said, they're globetrotters. They trot the globe. They travel all around. This, This entertainment from Harlem, New York travels the world. Well, they'd never left the south side of Chicago. And what ended up happening was he started to go into these ballrooms and put on exhibitions with these guys. And this was how the Globetrotters got started. And um, when I played for the Globetrotters, I actually used to dribble around like Curly Neal and slide all over the floor and everything. And someone asked me one time how I got started. Like, how did that start? And it was the Globetrotters used to go into barns. They'd go into ballrooms. Well, one time, one of the players got too close to the radiator heater and his shorts caught on fire. Ooh. So to get it out, he started running around <laughs> sliding all over the floor while the crowd was like, they thought it was hilarious. It's like a circus act. Exactly, right? Yeah. And they started to cheer and clap. And he's, you know, poor guy's trying to get the fire out of his trousers. And this is how it, kind of how it started. Sure, sure. So just, I always tell people like the coolest thing was to see the history and the heritage and the legacy that was associated with I mean, it was 1926. That's a long time for something to be around and Absolutely. still kind of thriving. So, yeah. So it evolved from Chicago right, to actually be associated with Harlem. Yep. Uh, and, and it was defined as an African-American basketball 
team right. that would entertain people, uh, yeah. differentiated from a league engagement. Right. right. Well, at the time, they were they were playing competitive basketball. So, like, people, very very few people know this. The Minneapolis Lakers, who are now the Los Angeles Lakers, when they had George Mike in, uh, they won the World Championship in 1948 or 49. Actually, 48 and 49. Well, the Clotars played them and beat them. And the first African-American to play in the NBA was uh, Nate Nat Sweetwater Clifton. He came from the Globetrotters. So the talent level in terms of playing real competitive basketball, it was it's always been there. Now they've kind of shifted more towards the show. But um, the Globetrotters had some really talented players back in the day. Well, and, and the level of talent and performance and delivery could could beat anybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you don't get to be a globetrotter unless you could really be competitive. Right. Even though the presentation today has uh, more of a predictable outcome. Right. And I tell people, we used to always say it, <laughs> we'd be in practice and, you know, some guys were known as competitive players. They'd come in when we'd play competitive and some guys were kind of show players. Well, when I first got on the team, I was kind of a competitive player and then I transitioned. I'm like, okay, if I'm having longevity, I got to kind of be a star of the show, but we would always get going and, and practice and start scrimmaging. And we, uh, one of our favorite sayings was, "Don't get it twisted. I can still play." So, like, <laughs> it was always fun to kind of razz each other with that. Yeah, yeah. And as an African American um, enterprise, uh, it, it was designed though for white audiences. Sure. I mean, again, you, you're you're giving us a history of our culture. Sure. Uh, it starts in a in a world where African American players weren't even welcome to play on the court. Right. It's evolved into a a premier event when it comes to town. Right. Was it designed with that in mind, or do you think it was always seen as a as a bridge between the communities? You know, that's the question I often wonder. Um, what was the original intention? Right. Um, you know, my my opinion. Uh, I, I think someone saw an opportunity, right, to to where they could profit, and uh, not necessarily motivated by social nobility. Right, <laughs> just hey, there's some money here. Right, and I've read books. I've read Metalark's Lemon's book, and his relationship with Abe Saperstein wasn't the greatest. Um, but you know, I, I often wonder. While no, I did not know Abe personally or any of those people. You just look at the times back then, and you know, I. I it's it's one of those things I've always wondered. Like, what it is now is that what the intention was when it started? So, so how would you describe it now? It's good, wholesome family entertainment. Um, it it brings people together, as with most sports, it brings people together. I I know because I actually got to do it. I actually got to see. I was actually I actually experienced it when I was seven years old that these memories that are created from a family coming to see a source of entertainment that the children will never forget for the rest of their lives. Like, I don't care what the intention is, that is powerful. That is, if you can do something one time for 45 minutes out of somebody's life at the age of seven, and they can live to be 80 and they never forget that time. And <laughs> that's, that's special. That's influence. Yeah, so... I think that has not disappeared. That's still around. Um, you believe in that, that it has value, it has merit. Absolutely. I, I'm hearing you say, if you see the Globetrotters are coming to your town, get your family together and get there today. Right, absolutely. Now, as with everything, there's always the, the underside of it. And, you know. 
Oh, what do you mean by that? Some, somewhat, you know, because when I was on the team, I was there from 06 to 2014. When I got there, we had an African-American owner, Manny Jackson. Well, Manny had, he was the sole owner of it with his own money. And then he went ahead and sold it off to um, an investment company. And then um, they had it for maybe two or three years. And then um, another small family bought it. But it was always African-American players, African-American coaches, white front office. And it was always that, it was, it was opposite. And we'd be like, well, how come none of us here can ever get in there? It never, you know, it, it's not traditional basketball. Like we don't run plays like you see in the NBA. These are like, you have to know and understand. And I'd always wonder like, how come a player can only get to be a coach? Because a lot of our coaches were ex-players but then it stopped there. They never. There seemed to be a barrier. There seemed to be a barrier. They never got in to where you had a, a really a platform of influence over you know to the, define what was next, right? And yeah. I, I always noticed that I'm not I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm also not the dumbest either. And I'd always be like, this isn't. There's something. There's <laughs> there's something. There's here. something there. Yeah, yeah. So and still there, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, our 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 video jockey here. He's uh, listening to us talk, Matt, and he's. Uh, Pull stuff up offline, and, and here's, I mean, a classic shot. Is that you? That is me. <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> that's is a long so, time ago. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I, is that a big poster in your house? Come on. You should, that's got to be against the wall somewhere. <laughs> you know what? I look at that, I'm like, boy, well, that was, seems like a long time ago. It really wasn't that long ago, but I had hair back then, so. <laughs> well, don't take it from me. That, that, that doesn't have to be so long ago. Uh, and you loved it. You loved your Globetrotter years. Yeah. So give me, in addition to what you just described, the value of, of, of what they do when they bring people to an arena, bring families, inspire, entertain, lift up. Nobody walks out feeling like, man, life's not worth living. When you see the Globetrotters play, sure. there's just a certain energy about it. Uh, so I get that you're, you're glad and proud to have been a part of that. Sure. What else about that experience do you treasure? You know, I had the opportunity. I never thought I would have. It was never a desire, something I wanted to. But I had the opportunity to travel to 70 different countries. So this, the Globetrotters are really Globetrotters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, we, I mean, I was gone eight, nine months out of the year. Wow. And of those nine months I was gone, five of them was straight. Like I would leave Christmas morning, come home in May. Um, it's like going to sea. Exactly. So... I tell people all the time, when you have been to as many countries as I, I have been to, and I'm not going to like the big cities, I'm going to, you know, the, the small, tiny cities that maybe have never seen Americans. Actually, I went to China one time, I don't remember what part of it was, but they had never seen Americans before. They had never seen black people. And they were pointing. And we'd be on the elevator and they'd like touch our skin because they, they couldn't they couldn't believe it. So my point of it is, is being able to see the world from different perspectives and different walks of life. Like my mom always tried to broaden our horizons. Now, you know, going to see the Globetrotters and, you know, going to a symphony and going to an opera, that will broaden your horizon. But when you travel the world and you see different walks of life and how they live, that really like makes you say like, wow, like this is amazing. Humanity is amazing. Yeah, in a way, one of the treasures you're taking away from your time with the Globetrotters is not even on the court. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the world yes. that you were introduced to. Yes. You know, I've been in about 70 countries myself, and wow. I've, I've noticed that 
there's soccer is a thing everywhere. Yes. Uh, and it wasn't so much in this country when I was a kid, but it's certainly taken over in this country too. Uh, so soccer is a kind of universal. Baseball is really strong in some places. You know, sure. the Japanese, for instance, most Americans may not comprehend uh, that baseball is it's a huge enterprise in Japan, for instance, as it is in Cuba or right. uh, some places in the Caribbean. Uh, football, American football, is really a uniquely American adventure. Right. Uh, there's <laughs> rugby and some other places. Cricket is a big deal in the Commonwealth. Right. What struck me is, uh, because I'm an old guy, uh, you know, everybody's younger than me, <laughs> your father, uh, in my years traveling over the last 40 years, uh, I've noticed basketball in its ascendancy. In other words, there was a day when I could go to India and you would never see a hoop. Sure. Today, you go to India, you'll see the cricket field, you see some soccer going on, but people are, are playing basketball. And again, even in the most rudimentary, uh, without any real hoop, but they're, right. they're going through the motions, they're playing the game. All right. The Harlem Globetrotters is an expression of fine art, really, mm. in this genre of basketball. As you've traveled the world, do you find that the audience is... Uh, responding to what you do on the court the same in different places. In other words, as you said, China, people are fascinated. Well, here's some Americans we've never seen before. Here's some black people that we've never seen before. That's one phenomenon. Right. But do you think there are people looking at what you're doing on the court and going, what is that about? Or do they connect immediately to understand the fine art? One thing I found is that you know, like laughing is universal. Like joy right, mm. is universal. Like it doesn't matter. I've been, I mean, we've played in Libya. I've <laughs> where they didn't speak English and there's 10,000 people in this arena and there was a cultural cultural barrier but one thing that broke it down was like laughter when you see you know a kid for the Washington Generals get his pants pulled down while he's about to shoot the ball like I don't care where you're from you're going to you're going to yeah, snicker yeah, you're going to yeah. think it's funny and that's one thing that I found like in our world we don't realize we have so many things that connect us but we always looked at we look at the things that don't connect us and if we would have realized like um, love connects us. Uh, laughter connects us. The, a smile connects us. I don't care where you're from. If you smile at somebody, it will have the same effect as it would anywhere else. And the globe charters really showed me that. It's like, wow, like we'd go to France and like they didn't understand us, but when they would see something that was funny to us, they would laugh as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So being a globe charter. Uh, even as you've described it, it's not competitive in the way the NBA is competitive. It's still very competitive. Sure. To, it's a very competitive uh, entree to get into it. Right. Uh, it's It requires a lot of athletic prowess. I mean, you can't do what the Globetrotters do without being in peak condition sure. and really skilled. So tell me about that side of it. Is this a kind of a professional team that requires your your workouts and, and I, they got people training you to do that. Is that the way it works? Like it would in another pro sport? Yeah. So I tell people at the time, the NBA, think of it like, like a hammer and a hammer is just pounding, right? It's pounding. It's rigorous. You know, it's tough games. You know, you're sore after the games, but the globe trotters, it's more of just a drop of water, right? It's just a, just a steady drop of water, right? So it seems like, oh, well, water would be easier, but it's when you're playing every single night, for five months. There's no break. There's no break. And slowly, you start off, you're great. You know, December, I'm ready to go. And then January, I still feel okay. And then middle of February, it's like, wait a minute, why is my knee hurting? Why is my back sore? And the, and the other thing is, <laughs> my wife, when I would get back off of tour for five months, she'd be like, let's go out to eat. I'm like, 
I literally just ate out every night for five months. <laughs> I want tuna fish sandwich at home. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last thing I feel like doing. But people don't realize, you know, when you're in the NBA or you're in the NFL or any other sport, you go back home. So you can get a home-cooked meal. And nutritionally, that's different than eating at Applebee's or going to a steakhouse every single night. Or in night. China. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't get me. I've, I've had things that I really don't ever desire to eat again in other countries. But your diet is really, that's the most challenging part of it. That's one thing when I got done playing the Globetrotters, I did not miss. I don't have to eat out three meals a day, seven days a week. Yeah. yeah. But it requires a lot of discipline. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, and you um, have a skill set. I mean, you're in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I mean, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell no. me about the four-point shot and that, that whole concept. Yeah, so I think it was 2011, I think. Globetrotters, they've always been known as innovators of the game of basketball. Like, they invented the alley-oop, um, the behind-the-back pass, all these things. And they're like, we want to do something else. So they invented the four-point shot. And it was, but but um, you're saying that there are a lot of things people take for granted now in pro ball right. that actually originated in the Globetrotters and has been exported. Yes, yeah, yes. Okay, so the gotcha. Globetrotters invented this thing called the four-point shot where I think it was the last two minutes of each quarter, these four-point mats were activated where you could shoot from there. They'd be worth four points. We're about 35 feet from the basket. And just to give you some sense of how far that is, the NBA line is 23 feet from the basket. So it's a whole another 12 yeah, feet. Yeah, that's a big, big deal. Right. So... We were playing a game on ESPN, and we actually had two games that day, and they were filming both games, but we didn't know which game they were going to film. And very few people know this. Uh, so the first game we were playing, and I got, I think, maybe four shots at the four-point shot, and I didn't make any of them. Well, the next game, and I had, a guy, I had guys on my team that had made four-point shots that game. Well, the next game we play, and I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, I got to make some shots. I have to... Because I know it's going to be on TV, but I we don't show up. Right, we yeah. don't know which one's going to be on TV yeah. though. So uh, that game, I ended up making, I think, two or three, and they ended up playing that game Ugh. on ESPN. And after that, I, I tell people all the time, my career took off after that. And technically, I wasn't the first one, but the first one on ESPN, but the first one on it. <laughs> and you know, I got to go to the Naismith Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, and the mat and the ball. I got to give a speech and got put in the Hall of Fame and everything. So. It's just funny sometimes how life works. Like, you just never, I always say you never know how it's going to play out. So, you know, I just, I'm just listening to you describe this moment and it just makes me, um, what's the word? It's, just, it's overwhelming to me because uh, you and I have known each other for a time and, you know, I have four sons. Right. And my boys growing up, three of the four boys were all into basketball, one not so much, but three of them were just, deep into it. And so we made the investment and got a high-end gorilla goal. Oh yeah. You know, Those are nice I mean, ones. You, you can hang <laughs> on the rim and you know it's 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 a it's a thing. Yeah. And we got it in our driveway and my kids were always with their friends. You know, they're pulling their buddies over to play shoot sure. uh, in the driveway. And so one day I was just thinking, man, I gotta be a better dad than this. I, instead of just, you know, letting the kids out there, I need to be interactive. So I went out there and thought, you know, I'm just gonna hang out a little bit with the boys and and they're playing ball and I trying to get it into the kind of pickup game and I'll never forget one of my sons saying, Hey, thanks, Dad, but could you go get us some popsicles? <laughs> my wife always stored popsicles in the freezer for the kids. Right. It, it was a very gentle way of saying, Dad, just get out of the just, way. <laughs> we got it, Dad. You go ahead and go yeah, back you inside. Know what? You are complete lost. <laughs> I couldn't make a basket from two feet, let alone uh, what you've described. So 
I'm just giving you that because for a person like me, what you've just described is a kind of Olympian achievement. Oh. Are you telling me that you you feel really confident that you could go out in a court? You're, you're describing a moment where you're going to be on ESPN. You're not sure if it's going to be broadcast, but you know it's being taped. And yeah, I got I got to make some moves here. I'm going to go out here to the far end of the moon and make this basket. Do you feel confident doing that, or is it is it just kind of chance shot? No, I, with anything I do in life, my mother taught me this. She just told me yesterday on the phone. She was she always she used to beat this in my head when I was young. Um, preparation, right, plus opportunity equals success. So I always prepared. I always prepared. So like that game, first game we played, I didn't make any. So instead of going back in the locker room and sitting hanging out, I went back out to the court and practice and practice and practice and practice and got to a point where I felt comfortable. And you know, I've always been that way. I've always, like I said, my mother, and my father, they always always tell me this: like, be prepared, prepare yourself. Whether you're in school, whether it's basketball, whether it's life, whatever it is, you do all that you can. So if the opportunity or when the opportunity presents itself, you can say, "Okay, I'm ready." And so I wasn't chance or luck. I had prepared yeah. for it, but yeah. If I was playing the piano, I would have had this down. <laughs> and if I was shooting the basket, right. I have this down. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. And of course, that's a there's a whole life lesson, isn't there? Which sure. I want to talk to you about, about how that translates into other dimensions of your life. But before we get there, I want to ask you about the Globetrotters once more. About, is it scripted in a, in a way? When... When you say you're playing every night, you're traveling seventy countries, and you know for months, every night you're out in the court. Every sh- production, and that's what it is, kind of production, uh, is for a different audience. So each audience is coming in night after night. Are they seeing the same thing because it's so scripted, or is it? Is there a spontaneity about it? That's how it looks. Yeah. I mean, it looks like wow, these guys are just having a great time, but it's actually I'm getting the idea that it's actually. Pretty precisely scripted. There's there's literally a script. So it was my third second year on the team. The CEO at the time, he came over from WWE wrestling. So another kind it, of entertainment. Right. <laughs> so you franchise. can you know, wrestling, it's like wrestling, like like maybe the rock, he doesn't wrestle as much as he used to, but like I don't I can't name a wrestler now. But the rock would go out there, he had a script, he already knew who was gonna win. And then within that script, you have flexibility to ad lib and be you know spontaneous. So the globe charts was the same way. We had here's what's supposed to happen in the first quarter, the second quarter, third quarter. There's these are these target points we need to hit, and then in between there, go and use your creativity. And that's that's what I enjoyed most about it. I, we always had the showman and we had the dribbler. Those were kind of like the two two players um, on each team. We had three teams at the time. Well, I was always with. They always paired the same dribblers with the same showman because, you know, it was like Batman and Robin. That's right, right. right. The synergy and of it. I enjoyed this the most when probably like my fourth year, I got with the same showman. I had established myself enough in the organization and we just, I mean, we clicked and it was just so much fun just because I never knew what he was going to say. He never knew what I was going to say or what I was going to do. And we just kind of flowed off each other. So, so yeah. I mean, yeah. it could be a really fun time. Yes. Even though it had a structure about it. That maybe gives you more freedom because you know that there are certain things that are going to happen, right? And you don't have to deliver that, right? And would that change from year to year? So, like uh, a different setup for the next year's tour? We did. We actually had people from Hollywood come in and like write scripts for us, oh. and yeah, like we, well, I mean, like we'd have training camp, and we would have to do um, like what are these like uh, like ad lib uh, exercises, yeah, yeah. which I loved. I enjoyed it, but like. 
what's that show used to come on TV? I forgot where you, uh, I think Drew Carey was on it, where basically you just like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it was just an ad lib, right? They give you a yeah, word yeah, and then yeah, you yeah. just went on. And that's, that's what we used to do all the time in training camp to, to create, because some guys just, you know, they came from the background of like, I'm a hooper. I'm a, I'm, I play basketball. I don't right. sit here and make jokes and do funny things. So we used to do stuff like that to make sure that guys were prepared. It's a whole other dimension. You're yeah. not only having to be on your game, pun intended. Right. Uh, you have to be a performer, an actor, yes. as it were. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so why are you doing Hollywood movies now? Because well, you, you could do it all. <laughs> I, you know what? That's, a, that, that, that's later down the road. That's later. I, mean, I, 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 keep, I keep that in mind. Later down the road. Derek, I'm telling you. I'm just, I'm just a guy. I say, <laughs> you got this. <laughs> all right. So this chapter of your life uh, has given you so much experience and understanding and, you know, what a great journey of horizon expansion. Uh, but in all of this, I know you're uh, a man of faith. You have, you have a certain grounding. Sure. I, I would think that, you know, being on stage, which is eight years of the Globetrotters, is eight years of on stage. Sure. And, and having a crowd you know, cheering and laughing, and, you know, and... I, you know me. I'm a, I'm a preacher by trade, right? And there's something about just the experience of holding a crowd in your hand. Mm, yeah. I mean, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, I, you I know. That. I, I could not shoot hoops or anything, but <laughs> I could talk to you. Drop. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing that when you're talking, you actually you've actually captured the audience. You you got. It's yeah. a cool thing, but it's also a dangerous thing. Sure. You have to have some anchors to survive that without being yourself right. detoured. You have some anchors. Sure. Tell me about that. Yeah, my, my parents, I get it from them, for sure. They um, they grew up in rural South Carolina. Both of them, you know, my, my, my parents had to drive eight miles just to go into town, just to go to a grocery store. So they grew up with, out in the middle of nowhere, and they didn't have much. And they were African-American, and they grew up during the civil rights movement, segregation. So they had to have a grounding and something more than what they were seeing. And they just instilled this in me and my brother. And um, mom used to always tell me, she'd tell me three things. Always keep the Lord first. Always work hard. And always believe that you can do something, regardless of what anybody else says. It doesn't matter. I can remember I was four years old, and she used to always point to my heart. She said, what you think in here is the only thing that matters. And I'm thankful. I actually was on the phone with my mom yesterday, and I, I told her to thank you because of the grounding in faith that she established, because I'm seeing now as an adult, because I deal with kids, I have my own children. This is like, not everybody does this. Not everybody pours the foundation for a child, and my parents did that. So no matter what happened in life, even when things crumbled and seemed like the end of the world for me, I still had this concrete foundation. And um, I'm thankful for that, for sure. Well, but you had to make a choice. Sure. I mean, a lot of parents are pouring what they know best how to do and do right, it well. Right. And people still make choices. Sure, absolutely. Did you have a, a time in your life where you struggled with, well, you know, I love my parents and I'm so thankful for where I, uh, the home I came from, but hey, uh, I, could, I could choose some different roads here. Yeah. My parents were always, I'm, I'm so fortunate. They didn't do it with sports. Like they didn't force anything on me. No. My mom is so, and my dad too, they're, they're open-minded, right? And... What they did was they said, here's this, here's that. But they always understood, like, I'm going to have to blaze my own path. I'm going to have to, for like, my mom used to, my dad used to always tell me, I can bring you to the, I can bring a horse to the trough, but you can't make it drink. Meaning, like, I'll show you everything and what you need, yep, right. but ultimately you're going to be the one who's going to have to do it. And faith, 
um, education, hard work. And I, sometimes as a parent, you cringe because it's like, I'm trying to help you, child, but yet you don't want to. You want to drop out of college. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but even in that, like my mom tells me now, she's like, I had to realize like you had to see this for yourself. And as with anything, like if you yourself don't taste it, you can't go by what else someone would some, oh, this tastes good. Well, I won't know until I experience it. So yeah, they've that. always understood that. But in your own journey of faith then, yeah. is it something that you feel like just grew with you and you never decided I'm going to turn a corner and, and challenge that? Or you actually came to a place where you thought, you yeah, know, man, uh, is that who I want to be? Is this faith thing that my parents have talked to me about, this concept of a, of a Jesus? I'm owning that for myself or it's just something that grew with you and you've always known? Yeah, I think it's, I've always, I've always been fascinated by Jesus, always. Even, I remember sitting in church and, you know, the pastor would be giving a sermon. I'd just be like staring at like the stained glass of Jesus. And I'd just be like, man, like, what is it like to meet him? Like, what would it, what would that be like? So I've always had this, this appetite. There was a draw. There was, yeah, there, absolutely, always. And, you know, now I'm a little bit older. I'm 38. And now, like, I can say my relationship, my understanding of Jesus is like, I tell people, I tell me, Jesus was the man. Like, like he was unbelievable. And, like, I, I think back, and it's my parents kind of planted the seed. And then I'm, I had to go and water it and fertilize it in a way that worked best for me. And, this is kind of this is kind of how I, I view things now, and I do the same thing with our children as well. Yeah. And sports has been a big part of your journey sure. and your professional career. Right. And we live in an age where sports are like uh, a huge thing uh, in our culture. Right. Uh, again, a dad of four sons. Uh, I'm the little league routine, the basketball routine, the intramural basketball, uh, the the demands of getting my kids to the field and championing that on, on, on. Some of it was in school. Some of it was intramural type stuff. Some of it were, you know, the separate leagues. Then there was soccer. Right. Uh, all of it. I, I'm just saying that it's really amazing and it's wonderful to see your children um, dive in and develop in a athletic competition. But right. at the same token, it sometimes seemed to me like my kids are all, you know, my kids are your age. But even back then, right. it, it, it was overwhelming. And sometimes it seemed to like command and demand attention that pushed everything out mm. to the side. Sure. And we still have that today where people have uh, their kids in programs and so on. Help us understand a little bit of what, first up, what's the advantage of getting your kids involved in an athletic uh, experience? Uh, and then let's go to what are the challenges of that? So what, what, one th thing that I've seen in my life and with children that I work with is it teaches you to, um, it shows that like, if I put time in, if I work at something, I will see the fruits of that. Sometimes it takes longer than others. Sometimes in the real world, I say the real world, but the non-sports world, you, it takes a little longer for you to see the results because the results are a little more subtle. But if you go spend two hours a day in a driveway for the next two weeks, by week three, you're going to start to notice a difference. Are you talking to me? <laughs> There's I, hope, Jim. I, I still have that gorilla goal. Nobody's using it. <laughs> There's hope still. Yeah, oh, but, but that's your point. If you put yourself onto it, right. you're going to go somewhere. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 
One thing I love about it too, I'm just looking at this picture right now. People don't realize what sports does. You have like, you have male, you have female, you have, you know, white, you have black, you have Latino, you have all of these different mixes that seem so different on the surface that society may say, you go over there, you go over here, I'm over here. Sports brings this all together. And people fail to realize that. You know, everybody obviously with went on with, you know, the racial climate in our in our country and you know, NFL and Colin Kaepernick and everything, but people don't realize at a at a young age, I don't care what you believe in, I don't care where you come from, sports brings that all together. And I tell people with with children and my own children, like if you can get them involved in sports as early as possible, not because of the sport, but because of the life lessons that they will learn within that sport that will come, that they'll be with them for life. So, yeah. And well, so you've just talked about the power of, of uh, discipline mm. proved valuable because in athletics, you can apply yourself and you can move the needle. Yes. Now, not everybody's going to be able to do the four-point shot. I'm just, I'm just guessing. <laughs> but I can improve some. Or I can find some sport where I can do something that'll allow me to grow. And so there's that. But then you've also uh, talked about the social context. And a lot of times, uh, I think we assume, or, or that those who champion athletic involvement in a team as well, you're forced to work as part of a team. You, right. you learn about how to get along and how to pass the ball to somebody else and not always be the star. And uh, you know, there's that. But you've, you've identified something different. In our time, especially, in, in the times in which we live, Sports have become, maybe not always were this way, because there was a day when they were not integrated. Right. But today, there's a lot more diversity on these teams. And you're, you're suggesting that that is a great way to help tear down barriers, to help prepare a foundation for someone to see people beyond the book's cover. Right. Yeah. You know, I, it's, you can find, I've seen this. I mean, you can, someone who clearly may be, racist, but they still love a football team that has African-Americans on it. So it it shows that sports breaks down barriers, whether people realize it or not, it breaks down barriers. And I've, I've, I found in my life, the way I am today is directly tied to to sports, like discipline, uh, work ethic, uh, humility, all of these things, confidence, right? It all stemmed from like this foundation in sports. And this is why like I encourage even who cares? You don't have to be good at it. You don't have to be you don't have to be good at the actual sport. Get your child involved in sports because there will be lessons that will be learned that will be transferable to their life. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come at this a little different uh, because you're describing an experience where you got involved athletically and and it was a really rich experience for you. And and just what you've described, you know, it it helped advance you. I'm the guy that that nobody wanted on their team. It didn't, <laughs> didn't matter what the. I don't believe was. that. No, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm smack down <laughs> the truth, you know. And as I've grown up, I realized how um, formative that was in me. But I, I, what I'm suggesting is, it was very difficult for me because I wanted to be like all kids do. I wanted to belong, and it seemed in my world that joining the team and being a central part of it was key. And I never got there. Mm-hmm. Just, I, I, I was the, you know, that awful thing that I don't know they do in school anymore, but when I was a kid, uh, if you're in the sixth grade, maybe even the seventh grade, you'd go to PE class and, and, the, and the coach or the teacher would say, all right, 
George and Johnny, you're going to be the captains of the football team or whatever. Now you you call out and all the rest of us guys would just line up and I was the last person. They, nobody wanted mm. me because I was going to fumble the ball. What I'm saying <laughs> is it's not a sob story. Even though it was very hard, sure. man, it gave me a sense of understanding of myself and that I had to be able to weather the storm. And I also, I think, developed a really empathetic and sympathetic mm. uh, genre of myself because I understand what it means to be left oh. by the side. What I'm just saying is not everyone is going to be able to get into sports and be good at something. Sure. Some people can try, and, and, and maybe they could have been, or if I had had a different attitude, maybe I, I, my, my thing was I wanted to be perfect, so I couldn't be, so I didn't really try. Sure. Go back out in the driveway and start shooting again. But all of that says that this huge influence in our culture of sports, which is a defining part of growing up, it doesn't matter who you are, right. it's a defining part, and it could be a different sport and a different community, has huge influence, and it can provide so much opportunity for solid development. Yes. But it also can be a rat race yeah. where, where kids are driven into a competitive zone that robs them mm. of other things. Do you see any of that? What would you say to a parent who's trying to help their child who's all in right. but is now ignoring everything else in life? Yeah, I think balance is key with anything, right? I don't, if you drink too much water, you can die of water intoxication, yeah, right? Yeah. And water is the thing that keeps you alive. We all need water, but too much of it isn't good for you. As with anything, you need balance. Balance is key. And um, you know, I tell parents now, like, like, let the child find what, it, what, what he or she loves, right? I always, actually, I remember when the internet first came out and Google was first coming out. I, I typed in, how do you become great, right? <laughs> The response I got was, I, which I was shocked I even got a response, but you must first love whatever it is. You can't be great at something that you don't love. So I say this to parents whose kids are all in. They really like make sure that they genuinely love this game. They love what they're doing, and it's not them doing it to please you because they'll never reach their pinnacle because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. So that's number one. Number two, finding the balance of it is at what point do I feel like it's a burden? When I do something and I feel like it's a burden, I know I need to scale back because you can never improve on anything that it's like a chore. Like, I don't want to do this. No, you know, sometimes you gotta, there's things that you have to do that maybe you may not want to, but um, finding that balance of saying like, okay, I'm playing this sport and I love it in the moment when I don't love it anymore. Like, okay. I actually experienced that when I played with the Globetrotters my sixth year when we had our child, our first son, and it was like, it changed your world. It changed. I, my perspective, I was like, man, being gone nine months out of the year is like, you leave a baby for nine months, it's a completely different child when you come home. Yeah, yeah. And I realized like, okay, it's becoming a chore now. I need to start figuring out what's next. So even something that I've loved my whole life, I had to realize like, okay, the scale is tipping a little bit. I got to balance it back out. Well, and that comes back to your grounding, your anchoring faith, sure. uh, a perspective, a lens on the world that can help you interpret the moment yeah. and, and achieve some balance. But I think uh, parents uh, probably need some of that grounding themselves to help their kids navigate uh, through that. Uh, this headline that uh, was pulled up, when church gets sidelined by youth sports, sometimes uh, youth sports can be a competitor mm. with other things. Sure. And uh, I guess... 
everybody's got to stop and look and say, where's, where's the balance? What, what matters most? Yeah. And that's, it's always whatever you give your attention to, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> so if you sit here and focus on sports, 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 then, you know, you're, what about the rest of life? Right? You got to make sure there's an equal balance or prioritize like, okay, so maybe sports isn't up here. Maybe my faith is up here. And like I said, just finding that balance to make it all work for you individually. Because what works for me may not work for somebody else. You know, I had, as I said, some of my sons were really into basketball. One of them in particular, I won't name which one. People who know me will have to guess. Uh, <laughs> really mellow, mm-hmm. mellow guy. Oh. Uh, but as he was doing the church league basketball, where in our town there were a whole group of churches that fielded high school teams. And uh, well, and some young adults played on it too. But anyway, what I observed is my young son, who was really skilled at basketball, honestly, his mom and his dad, I think he could have he been a globetrotter. <laughs> well, he's a white guy. But <laughs> anyway, uh, he got playing on the court and he's so mellow off the court, but on the court, he, he became this like monster personality. <laughs> Who is this kid? Well, I mean, he honestly he had he exuded anger and frustration at times because of you know somebody blocked his shot or whatever. Uh, do you do you feel like there's? Did you experience that ever? Do you ever find that you have to discipline yourself not just physically and train, but you have to manage your emotions in a competitive environment? Sure. It sports is you know. You, you go into a different world when you go into sports, right? Obviously, in life, you have to compete and you have, you know, goals that you're striving for. But when you go into the sports arena, it's absolute. Like, you either score more points than that team or you don't. And what I've found is— And it's immediate. It, yeah, and it's immediate. And you have 40, 48 minutes to do this. You have to change the way you perceive and view things. And through that change of perception, now your behavior— changes. And then your behavior is what everybody's seeing. So what we call being competitive, that's us physically seeing what you're thinking. So like I look at Michael Jordan, right? They say Michael Jordan was one of the most competitive people. This was what we all see, but what goes inside of his mind and the transformation from sitting on the couch to playing in the playoff game that has to happen, I would give any amount of money just to like see what he thinks because I know for you to become that, what you must first think and how you, and so to hear that with your son and the beauty of it is it translates to life. You know, if you can control it and harness it. If you can focus it. If you can focus it right, it becomes an attribute that you have. Like, you know, he's a go-getter. He works hard. You know, he's focused. You know, he, whatever needs to get done, he gets it done. This is the same, this is just the other end of the spectrum with the word being competitive. And, and since you've left the Globetrotters, yep. you've done some elite training for athletes. Sure. Uh, you have become a motivational a coach, uh, someone who is, as you say, you're working with kids. Uh, do you work with adults too? I do, yes. Yeah. Yep. I mean, so you have a, a kind of client base yep. and you're, you're helping them achieve something. Yep. Is it always athletically focused or is it just about life? It's rarely ever. So I've got clients in the NFL, the NBA, I got stay at home moms, corporate executives. I never, it's never about their job or what they do because that's always the secondary, right? We look at, let's just say you want to help somebody get in the NBA. Okay, the NBA is secondary. That thing, you, right, that person, that's what we have to focus on. And your mind is what fuels it, your thoughts. People don't realize what you think is how you feel and how you feel is how you behave and how you behave is what carries out your life. 
So what ends up happening is I've, I, I, like I said, I work with NBA players who have the same mindset as a ninth grader. It's fascinating. I've, I've had literally NBA players tell me that they don't feel confident. They don't feel like they can make a shot. And a nine, in nine, sorry, 11, ninth grader Billy is saying the same exact thing. But they're playing in the NBA. But they're playing in the NBA. And it just so happened that physically, you know, the guy in the NBA is 6'11", and yeah. Billy Billy's doesn't not. have, he's not. So, yeah. but I, I noticed something. I realized that those who we deem as quote unquote successful, they have figured out a way to control from within. And then it ends up showing itself without. And it starts inside. It starts inside. And this is why I love doing what I do. It's like, I can teach you how to shoot a basket. That's, that's not hard at all. Are you talking to me? I'm telling you, Jim, I'm telling you, it's not too late, <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah. that's not it. It's your mind. The moment that you believe that you can be that, then you're going to start to see your behavior change a little bit more. And then before you know it, you'll start to live this out. And this is, like I said, NBA, NFL, you know, Fortune 500 company. This is what I'm finding with these quote unquote successful people. They get it. And how do you do that? I mean, I, I, I get the premise. Yeah. How are you translating for the NBA player? Yeah. You can be more than the ninth grader. Yeah. What's that process like? It takes, like, so like I'll look at, like I use my child as an example, my son. I see things that he can't see. Think of it like this, like you have gifts, you have talents, but they're inside of you. You can't see them. I use the analogy of imagine if you had something in your nose. You can't see it, but I can. <laughs> and it's my responsibility to tell you and show you so like with my child, I, tell my, I ask him what his goal is. He tells me, he wants to, oh, I want to play in the NBA one day. My job now, if that's your seed, is to water it and to point out and show things. Because the reason why you do this is because what ends up happening, that person, the moment that they believe and they're willing to take the action, it's good as done. But if I believe it and you don't believe it, it doesn't work. It will not work. Well, and if you were my coach, I'd have to believe that you're not just talking to me, right. that you actually believe it first, right? right? right. And what you're suggesting is uh, having someone who we respect, yeah. who has already played the game, so to speak, right. who believes legitimately and authentically that I can also play the game right. is a big, powerful boost, it's right? A, that's, yes, and I, I just tweeted this yesterday, and I can't, I can't harp on this enough. You will only be whatever you believe you can be. It doesn't matter what he says or she says, you can never be something that you first don't believe that you can be. And I'm seeing this in my own life. You know, I was 10 years old. I'd, my mom, I had a school assignment. You had to write down what you wanted to be when you grew up. Unbeknownst to me, I wrote down, I wanted to play professional basketball at 10 years old. Mm. And my mom saved it. And she showed me right about a year ago. And I'm like, wow, like I didn't even remember doing yes, that. Yeah. But here's the key. My parents never told me I couldn't do anything. No one was ever saying, oh, you can't do that. Look where you're from. You don't have enough money. You're not good enough. You're not. Nobody ever said this. And I started interviewing and working with people. How did you know you were going to play in the NFL? Oh, I always knew. I always believed I could. And I started to realize the power in believing. Well, isn't that what faith is, right? Yeah. Believing in something there's, that you cannot see. There's some see. Jesus stuff going on here. <laughs> yeah, and, and then I go back to the Bible, and then Jesus says, you know, like, well, they, well, how'd you heal that demon-possessed boy? Well, you guys didn't believe. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move that mountain. Over. And I'm realizing, like, this is, this is a choice. 
We have a choice. I have a choice to believe in myself and what I'm capable of. And nobody can make me do it. I have a choice to make. And this is something I will harp on until the day I leave this earth to get the youth, to get to teach them young to believe in themselves, regardless of what it may look like around them. You grew up as an African American, yeah, young guy, and uh, you've just des- you've you've described a growing up that was in, in a, a really healthy environment at home, and that your parents were people who had themselves pushed themselves forward in a sometimes hostile environment, given the world that uh, they were born into. Sure. Uh, you've been given then some opportunities that they didn't have, right. but and and you also have apparently walked into this world uh, with that sense of confidence and belief that is consequent to your upbringing and the faith choices you've made. But as a young African American man, did you find yourself uh, wrestling with what might be you know a stereotype uh, in our world today? I mean, is that a factor in who you are? Absolutely. How so? Um, so I, I can tell you this. It was when George Floyd, when that happened. When that happened, it like woke me up. It made me realize how much of my life is dictated by these stereotypes of how I'm supposed to be. And I didn't realize, I, you know, my parents used to always tell me, like, you know, make sure, you, make sure you're clean cut. Make sure you're dressed nice. Make sure you, you know, don't get tattoos where anybody can see it. Don't make sure, because this is what they were taught, because this was a means of survival for them. They had to be basically perfect in order to have a chance. To be normal. To be normal, right? They had to be exceptional just to be deemed normal, normal yeah. right? Yeah. And when George Floyd, that whole thing happened, I remember I was in the shower and I just started crying because it hit me. I realized he didn't do anything. He did nothing to warrant what had happened to him and how everybody just kind of stood around and watched. And I said, just as easily as that was him, it could have been me. And I realized... I started asking myself these questions. Why do you feel this way? Why are you scared of this? Why are you worried about this? Why does your heart start beating fast when you see the police? I started asking myself these questions and it was all coming down to these are these labels, these paradigms, these barriers, right? These boxes that I've been put in. Subconsciously, I didn't even realize. And it was my responsibility then to break them down and see like, I'm none of those things that you say. I'm none of those things. Like you see me as my skin, but I know what I am. So regardless of what you think, I must know what I am. Well, maybe even what you fear I might be. Right. Not knowing, but you're, right. your default fear. Yes. Yeah. And it was something that like, it was liberating. It was liberating. And liberating then, for you to connect those dots. Yes. And to see like, oh my gosh, this is why I think the way I think. This is why I feel the way I do. This is why like... You know, I'm always constantly watching, like, wonder, wonder what he's thinking. What, like, this was like, and I learned that actually DNA actually gets passed down, right? And, you know, my parents dealt with it. Their parents dealt with it. Their parents were slaves. And it went, and this got passed down to me. And I realized at that moment, I'm like, okay, I have a responsibility. I must change this because the way I have been living, the way I feel, I don't want anybody. I don't want my children. I don't want their children to have to feel like this. I must change the narrative and the starter from within first. And so how, how are you doing that? Loving, treating everybody. It's going to sound cliche-ish, but how I would want to be treated. But I realized I must first treat myself that way first because how I treat you is really a reflection of how I treat myself. So 
you know, I had difficult conversations all summer with people who I thought, you know, I'm not going to say they weren't friends, but to hear their perspective on people who have skin colored the way I do was interesting, right? This is one thing I will say 2020 brought everything to the surface so you could see what everybody was really thinking. And even in those moments when someone told me like, you know, I don't, you know, I feel this way about black people. I feel this. I realized I still have to love you. I have to overcome that. I have to overcome that. And in order to do that, I must love myself. I must love myself. In order to love myself, I must not listen to what the world has told me that I am. I must realize what I am. And this has really opened up the door for me to say, you know what? I don't care if you're Asian. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if you're racist. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democrat. It does not matter. These are all things that are of this world, right? What you truly are, right? Your spirit, that's what you are, your soul. I must see you on that level. And this is... It's been liberating for me. It's helped me to be a better human being and to connect people and show like, hey, like I know I look like this and you look like that, but at some point this is all going to stop working and there's going to be a part of you that continues on. Let's connect on that level. That's what really matters. And that doesn't have a color. That doesn't have a political preference. That doesn't have a gender. So, And, yeah. and would you say, as you've described this journey just in the last year, yeah. uh, George Floyd, uh, that tragedy took place uh, not quite a year ago, as right. we we're talking at this table today. I'm hearing you say that you've actually felt like you yourself have grown and stretched and become more secure and more able to navigate. Yeah. You're feeling liberated in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think back even, you know, Jim, we went to um, we went to Alabama yeah. and we were I still see visions of that picture of when we were at the uh civil rights uh museum and and Derek you and I attended a conference that was marking the 400th anniversary of uh, American slavery right. uh, in Montgomery. And anyway, you were... Yeah, and that was really the beginning of it. Like this, and then, you know, I, I would think about it because I learned things as an African-American I didn't even know. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't learn history, it's bound to repeat itself. So, like, learning it and seeing... And then, like I said, everything happened with George Floyd and then all the social injustice going on. And, and then this internal shift with myself, it was like, okay, okay, there's, there's an opportunity here to start like, making the world a better place. You got to go and do it, D. And this is kind of my mission, my goal. This is my purpose. If I can help what I've been able to do within myself, if I can help her, if I can help him, if I can, this is it. And we'll slowly make this world a better place. You know, as you recall that memory of uh, that visit to Montgomery, I, I just want to give a shout out to Montgomery. Uh, I, I've been to many of the civil rights iconic uh, museums and uh, what should we say, uh, crucibles of the civil rights journey in this country in Atlanta and Birmingham and so on. But what the museum in Montgomery and the and the whole narrative of Montgomery is something that anyone who wants to explore this subject, yeah. <laughs> no matter what your background, uh, white, red, yellow, in between, visit Montgomery. Yes. It's, 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 it is a compelling, yes, for sure. a compelling visit. But that, that kind of brings me back to your sports because sports is a megaphone. It has so much power in our culture. We all understand the, the way in which um, pro ball, be it NBA or NFL or the... Uh, Major League Baseball, all of it is is hugely influential, and you know, at one level, it's all entertainment, isn't it? I mean, but just like films are entertainment, right. people uh, sometimes get weary of what George Clooney says. He's just an actor. Why should he speak on right. a public policy issue? 
Uh, but the same way, there are superstars in sports who also make statements beyond the game. Sure. And we've seen that drama, uh, and I call it a drama because it's been very controversial, the way in which uh, in recent years there are pro ball players who are like making statements. So, you know, Colin Kaepernick, sure. for instance. I mean, an elite quarterback uh, who uh, takes a knee famously sure. at an NFL game. How does that... How does that land on you as a uh, a black athlete? Yeah. Uh, given your story, your journey, your experience you just described, and also someone who loves the game. Yeah. What do you think? So, you know, when he did it, I said, wow, this guy's, like, I don't know the word, I guess brave, courageous, because I knew the backlash that was going to come from it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset, I say this is my personal opinion of, if I'm going to worship Jesus, right, I have to live as Jesus did, right? I have to embody that. I can't, just, I can't just say it. I have to embody it. And we always look at, like, Jesus from our lens now. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes or someone else's shoes back then. You realize Jesus went against the status quo, right? Jesus was, he was doing and saying what nobody else was doing or saying, just as Colin Kaepernick was. Colin Kaepernick went against, for the good, he went against what people would have wanted for the good of everybody. And I, I think, you know, if we're going to sit here and hold the flag up here, you know, and we say the Pledge of Allegiance and God we trust and everything, then that which we are worshiping can't be below that. It must be up here. So if Colin Kaepernick, if Jesus came to teach love, to teach peace, to teach self-renewal, right, if if this is what his teachings were, equality falls under that. So if Colin Kaepernick says, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice worshiping this flag like everybody wants me to do to speak for those who don't have a voice because of my platform, then that's what I'm going to do. We don't, very rarely do people put themselves in Colin Kaepernick's shoes. Think about it. He was willing to sacrifice his income, his livelihood to speak on something that he actually didn't have to say a word about. How many people will actually do that? If you work at FedEx, if you work at the post, I don't care where you work. Are you willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to take a check anymore, and I'm going to do something, stick up for people who, who don't have a voice. Are you willing to do that? Very few are. But what we do is we look at Colin Kaepernick and we say, how dare he's disrespecting the flag? No, he's not disrespecting the flag at all. He's actually not. What he's doing is... If I keep telling you something, and this is what he was doing, he kept telling you guys, you know, black and brown people are being treated unfairly. He kept telling, he kept telling, kept telling. It's like with my child. Hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. At some point, I have to raise my voice a little bit so you can hear me a little better. And this is what ended up happening. And of course, the narrative gets switched, and now he's disrespecting the flag when he's come out many a time and said, I'm not disrespecting the flag at all. But the reality of it is, you're listening to me now. You wouldn't listen to me before. Yeah. Now, yeah, now I got your attention. Here's what I'm trying to do. And I look at Colin, I look at what he's done. As with everything, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Martin Luther King, I mean, go down the list of people who um, sacrificed their own selves for the betterment of others. They were never appreciated when they were here. It was always after the fact. So 40, 50, 60 years from now, he'll be in history books and they'll be talking about what Colin Kaepernick did because for, for the NFL to come out later and apologize, right? Roger Goodell apologized when before he was being criticized while he was doing it. 
And you well, know, I mean, he did lose his post right. and hasn't been able to has, find another. And it's not because he's not in shape, right? And he still has the same message. He's not saying, "Okay, well, you know, I'll come back and work. Don't worry. Like, forget about all that." No, he's still preaching the same thing, which is it just shows you how. Well, but given the fact that the NFL responded in, you know, in a shall we say, discreet but obvious way to his protest. And then Goodell comes out as the NFL commissioner saying, you know what, maybe we got that wrong. How did Goodell's apology or kind of mea culpa land on you as a a black athlete? Me, I'm not really one for like apologies. That's just me personally. Like, okay, cool. You said sorry, great. Words don't mean anything. They're just noises, right? When I say words to my dog, unless it's his name, he doesn't know what I'm doing. He doesn't care. Actions. When I show my dog I love him, that's what his tail starts wagging. So the same goes for anything else. So if Roger Goodell is saying, I apologize, I apologize. This is my thought. Okay, cool. Like you maybe thought it was one thing. Actions must now back that up. You cannot just have lip service. Actions will always speak louder than words. And as with anything, this is why like I look at Colin Kaepernick as a hero. Because his actions, he wasn't just saying like, hey, black and brown people are being discriminated. No, I'm willing to sacrifice my livelihood, this thing. You got to think, I was seven years old. I remember when I, my dream was to be mm-hmm. this thing that he worked his whole life for. He was willing to say, you know what? Even if this happens, I got to stick up for them down there who don't have a voice and who are being discriminated constantly. And he was willing to do that. His actions spoke even louder than what his words are. The same goes for Roger Goodell's apology. What are you doing? Not just Roger Goodell, but everyone. What are you doing? What actions are backing those words that you're speaking? And as, a, as I think about this whole um, intersection of, of sports and entertainment and real life issues, that's what's converged on the field in the, in the Colin Kaepernick case, it seems to me. I, I have a good friend who, it, I'll, I don't want to betray his confidence, but he's a guy who stands on a stage and sells out arenas. Mm. Uh, He's an entertainer. And uh, he reflected to me once, he said, you know, when people buy a ticket to come to this concert or to this show or whatever it is, uh, they're not coming to have a political statement made. So this is his rationale for, uh, I'm not sure that's a good idea uh, because, hey, people bought a ticket to go to the game. They didn't come to have a lecture or to be challenged about some other extraneous issues, which are important issues outside the stadium, but not here. What would you say to that? You know, life is life. Like what, at what point does you just like, Okay, that's that's not that. This isn't part of life. This is like life is all encompassing. So I just, a matter of fact, I just, <laughs> I was just at a church Sunday, and I was there speaking. And as I'm waiting, a deacon was talking to me. He's like, I used to watch sports, but now it's become bigger than you know. Now a guy's always got something to say. It's not even sports anymore. And I just kind of listened to him, and I realized like people pick and choose what they want to say. Life is life is all encompassing. So if I go to watch Colin Kaepernick and he's speaking about political, like this all falls under the fabric of life. While maybe it may not affect me personally, it affects somebody else personally. And their life, in some way, shape, or form, is my life. Because under life is the whole, is, is everybody. So when people say that, we're failing to realize that we're all connected. All of us. I'm no better than you. 
You're no worse than me. Like, we're the same. Because my life, at some point, will influence your life. And so forth and so all the way through the whole world. And the sooner we realize this, we'll realize, like, okay, maybe I don't have to worry about racial injustice. But you know what? There's somebody out there who I do know who does have to deal with it. And that affects you in some way, shape, or form, whether it's you or your children. I just tell people all the time, like, I've realized I have to be good to, let's just say, a player that I'm working with. He may be 22 years old. He, at some point, will be my age. And maybe he, because I was good to him, he will help my children. And because somebody helped my child, maybe my child now will help somebody. And this is really how life works. We, we, we seem so separate because this is what humanity likes to do. We like to keep ourselves, create this separation. But we're all, this, we're all connected. And the sooner we realize that as a country, as a world, now we won't have this duality of thinking like, oh, well, this is just sports and it's politics. They shouldn't mix. No, they have a platform. They have a platform and voices are heard at a higher platform. So if you're hearing him, maybe this is why he got that platform. So you could hear him and see like, oh, wow, there are people below me that I didn't even realize they have to deal with this. Well, and of course, Kaepernick took a knee before the George Floyd case. Right. And even before George Floyd, there was the Black Lives Matter right. uh, phenomenon. Sure. Uh, do you see those connecting? In other words, Black Lives Matter as a as a phrase, as an idea. Uh, what's your take on it? I think it's, I obviously get the gist of it. Me personally, I think it's somewhat um, embarrassing. As a black person, it's embarrassing that I have to tell you my life matters. Like, yeah. Think about that. Like, I think it needs to be said. It does. It does need to be said. And I, I, I see both points. I see why people are like, oh, well, blue lives matter. Because what we do is we look at it and say, oh, well, he's saying that his life matters that's more than mine. That's an assumption. That's not, that isn't what it is. But when you don't even realize that my life actually does matter less in this country than your life, you think now because we're equal, I have more. But you didn't realize that I was actually less than you. Yeah. So um, like you said, I've thought about this many times. How do we, how do we say Black Lives Matter but also like empower because I don't like I, I something is basic as a life. Like I have to tell you it matters. Like I have to tell you like that's, I don't think people really comprehend that. That's wild. That's crazy to think. I got to tell you my life matters. This is something that we're inherently born free. Why should I have to tell you that? Hey, Hey, I matter over here. So finding the balance of like, okay, yes, black lives matter. I don't matter more than anybody else. I just matter equally to you without you feeling slighted. Cause that it didn't, there's right, not a right. balance then. So, so yeah, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> well, that's life, isn't it? Right, right. But then back to your own conviction that you have to know who you are. Exactly. Uh, but sometimes you have to say out loud who you are right. and I matter. Right. That's right. And, you know, we've talked about the NFL and Colin Kaepernick, but uh, that's football. And you and I both know that football is simply a wannabe compared to basketball, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's the NBA. And the right. NBA had this big uh, uh, season where they are playing during the pandemic and they're in the bubble. But the NBA players come out with Black Lives Matters jerseys on it. I mean, it seems like quite a different, uh, what should we say, acknowledgement or kind of uh, wrestling with the issue in the NBA, differentiated from the NFL, do you have any thoughts about that? Why, yeah, why is it different? 
I think the NBA is just a little more progressive than the NFL. They've always kind of been. Adam Silver, the commissioner, has done an amazing job of pushing this narrative and not being able to push the envelope and not being afraid to speak out and really use the voices of the players to be the voice of the league. Uh, whereas the NFL, they have a different audience. Their audience is probably a little more conservative, maybe um, on, on the different end of the spectrum where they don't want to ruffle those feathers. And, you know, anytime you're going to make change, right, drastic change, anytime you're going to go against the status quo, there's going to be some ruffling of feathers. And I think about my own life, and this I say this is what I know, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. When someone feels uncomfortable, okay, this is where we're supposed to be because when you're uncomfortable, this is where all the growth takes place. So as a country, as a culture, um, as a society, if these conversations are uncomfortable, let that be a signal that we need to have it then because through this is where we're going to make the most growth. Would you like to see your son in the NBA or your daughter in the WNBA? You know what? I tell I, me and my wife talk about this all the time. I, I want him to do whatever his heart leads him to do. He says right now at the age of eight, I'm in the NBA. I want to play in the NBA. <laughs> He's got that little piece of paper you're going to save. Uh, right? <laughs> he wears his jersey every night. He watch, He he knows, like, I'm going to play the NBA. My job is to support him. I'm going to say, if this is what you want to do, I know you can do it. You have to know you can do it. And if he wants to be a ba ballet dancer, my job is to do the same thing. And my daughter, she's our free spirit. She's going to do whatever she whatever she wants. And I think our job is to just be the wind in her sails. If you're going to watch basketball, who's the best? Who do you want to see? That's a really good question. Oh, man. I, I would love to see the Lakers in person. I would love to see LeBron one last time before he gets out of here. Um, I've never seen Steph Curry. See, obviously, you see him play on TV, but I think it'd be cool to see somebody that skill shoot from that far consistently in a game. And do you think you'd be tempted to run down there and say, you know, I got this four point thing <laughs> yeah, Let me show you something real quick, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, why not? Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it's, the game is definitely evolving as with anything else in life. Nothing stays the same so long as you're making growth and to see the game evolving the way it is. I see my son, I told my son the other day at practice, I'm like, you're eight years old. If you would have played me when I was eight years old and one-on-one, -on -one, you would destroy me. That's just how much further along the game is. And um, this natural evolution of humans is what we want. You think it's positive? Absolutely. Absolutely. And are you encouraged about the course of uh, this world that you live in? I am. I think we're moving in the right direction just for the fact that um, people are more aware now. People are more conscious of what's going on. Right? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with um, people who are white, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know racism still existed. Okay, good. Now that you have a higher state of consciousness, now you're aware. And when you're aware, you can start to solve and fix things. But if you're not aware, you can't fix it. So I think while it's uncomfortable, right, just like with muscle, right, when you lift weights, you're, you're sore, but through that soreness, there's growth, there's development. Same goes through our, through our country and our world. 2020 was nuts, obviously. But even from this, good is coming from it. We just have to get a little further down the road to see it. And when the Harlem Globetrotters come to town, they will someday. Are you taking your kids? Yes, I try to take them every year. My son's now that he's really into basketball, he would love it. Uh, we took them two years ago. We were down in Florida, and uh, they loved it. Yeah, they, they enjoyed it. So it's, it's family entertainment. We try to do whatever we can as a family to, to, to create these memories. So when they're 
30 years old, they'll look back and be like, remember when mom and dad took us to do this? So if it's the Globetrotters, more power to it. And, and when you play f- for eight years, do you get like that lifetime pass? You know what? I do. <laughs> I get to go in the locker room and go. Oh. Thankfully, the coaches are still my coach when yes. I played. So yeah I, yeah. yeah, I get to go in the locker room and see the guys and everything. So And I'm just telling you that uh, your kids watching the Globetrotters, they're going to be just like jazz to think, Dad, did you do that? <laughs> and then they're going to say, prove it when we get home. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Derek Grant, so proud to know you. Well, thank you. Thanks for uh, what you do, for who you are, for joining us at the table today. Godspeed. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.